though I have to admit that this season of Easter is my favorite in the whole church calendar, which is probably not surprising. This season of Easter, which we get to celebrate for several weeks, is so rich with the history and through the readings and the traditions that we celebrate, we get to place ourselves right in the middle of the action. And it really is a gift to us to kind of get to know Jesus so much better, especially the last hours and days of his life. And there's so much there. there it brings out so much emotion for us. It started with Palm Sunday, when Jesus rides into Jerusalem amid shouts of Hosanna in the highest. And we celebrate that Sunday. And then we moved into the Thursday, the Holy Thursday, Maundy Thursday. And some of you I know were with us. We had a, an agape dinner here, which is something that has been celebrated in the church for almost since the beginning of its time, since the very first Christians celebrated a meal together. And we commemorated the Last Supper together here on that Thursday, remembering how Jesus tied a towel around his waist and knelt at the feet of his disciples and washed each one's feet and then said to them, you do the same now, serve as I've served, love as I have loved. And then we move into Good Friday, and if you were here with us at our Good Friday service, you know the agony and the grief of that day is palpable as we leave the church in silence on Good Friday. And then finally we come to Easter Sunday and we walk in and there's flowers and music and it was a beautiful day and everyone's dressed in their Easter best and it's such a celebration of the resurrection and all of these events we can just feel ourselves right in the middle of it all. And so then we come to today and today we're locked in an upper room with the disciples scared, in disbelief over the events that have happened, trying to make sense of it. What in the world just transpired? The disciples have just heard from Mary Magdalene that Jesus is risen from the dead, but they have yet to see him for themselves, and so they've sequestered themselves in this upper room. They're behind locked doors when all of a sudden Jesus walks through the door. And I don't mean Jesus opens the door and walks in. I mean Jesus walks through the locked door to the disciples and says to them, peace be with you. And he shows them his hands and he shows them his side. And there's rejoicing. And they're, they're ecstatic to see Jesus. All but Thomas. Because Thomas, for some inexplicable reason, the Bible doesn't tell us why, isn't there. And so when the disciples then encounter Thomas, they tell him what has happened, and he says, no way, I don't believe it. I saw him hanging on the cross. I don't believe for a minute. I won't believe it until I get to touch his hands, until I get to touch his side. And I want to just stop right there. Because the text goes on, as we heard this morning, we know that Jesus does appear again, and that Thomas does get that moment. He does get to touch Jesus' side and touch his hands, and he gets to proclaim, my Lord and my God. But I want us to stop just before that scene, because none of us have gotten that opportunity that Thomas got. We don't 
get to feel and see and experience the physical presence of Jesus the way it's described in the Gospel of John. And so we're like Thomas before he sees the risen Christ. We're the ones left having to take the word of those who saw him walk through the locked door and those who stood there stunned as Jesus, risen from the dead, breathed the Holy Spirit onto them. No wonder Thomas didn't want to believe it. How could he have missed that? And so, what if the next scene hadn't happened? And Thomas, like us, was left having to take the word of his fellow disciples that Jesus had indeed been resurrected. It's not very hard for us to imagine since that's our reality every day. We are faced with that scene that Thomas was faced with. And like him, even in the midst of our great faith and our sometimes great knowledge of Jesus, we are often confronted with things in this life that make us say, I don't know. I just don't know what I believe anymore. It seems more and more, in fact, that our faith is tested and we confront challenges and issues that can just shake us to the core. What are we supposed to do, for example, with yet another devastating school shooting? What are we supposed to do with terrorism continuing on the rise, with people in Syria continuing to flee their homes and be killed? What are we supposed to do with an earthquake the size of the one that happened in Haiti where 200,000 people were killed several years ago? 200,000 people like that. And what are people of faith supposed to do with the Bible sometimes when it seems in contradiction to things like science, climate change, carbon dating, even the age of enlightenment? What are we supposed to do with the discrepancies in our minds? to say nothing of the issues that vex us every day, what are people of faith supposed to do about divorce, same-sex marriage? What are people of faith supposed to do with cancer, with freak accidents that steal people from our lives? What are we supposed to do about birth control? What does God believe about that? What does God say about immigration? I could go on and on, but I don't have to. Because I know that your faith has been tested over the years. I know that you have your doubts. Maybe you were raised with church doctrine that is frankly hard to swallow. Or maybe you've recited prayers and statements of belief that even though they've been recited by hundreds of, for hundreds of years by thousands and thousands of people, you still find yourself saying, really? Is that what I really think? And here's what grieves me the most. Every one of us has had these doubts, but we think we're not allowed. We think we're not supposed to. Well, I want this to be a place where you can bring your doubts. You can bring your questions and your suspicions. I want people to know that they are welcome here, maybe not in spite of their doubts, but because of them. And more importantly, I want people to know that Jesus welcomes doubt. 
If the story had stopped with Thomas showing up late to that party and not being able to see Jesus for himself, I believe a beautiful thing would have transpired. And it's something that happens every single week, every day, when people are gathered in homes and in churches around the world. It's called the community of believers. In the book of Hebrews, it says, let us consider how we might spur one another on and encourage each other in faith. In the book of Acts, we read that there was a sense of awe that came over the community of believers as they worshiped together and prayed together and shared meals. And Jesus himself said, wherever two or more are gathered, there I am. I believe that those disciples would have held Thomas in their midst, despite his doubts, despite his wanting to see for himself. And they would have said, we get it. It's hard to believe, and we are with you, Thomas. They would have spurred him on and encouraged him in love and in faith. They weren't going to shun Thomas for his unbelief. I think they would have said, let us believe for you. Let us hold you. Like that beautiful poem, Footprints in the Sand, which I know you all have heard of, when you saw only one set of footprints, it was then that I carried you. We are a community. Let us carry each other. Let us carry you through your doubt, I believe they would have said to Thomas. I heard an interview recently with a 37-year-old woman. She's a wife and a mother and a professor of Christian history at Duke Divinity School. And shortly after the birth of her son, she was diagnosed with inoperable, incurable cancer. Her name is Kate Bowler. And in the interview, she described her journey these past few years, knowing that she might never see her son reach his teen years, knowing that there were dreams and plans that she and her husband had made that might never come to fruition. And she described her moments of utter despair and anger and all of her questions. And then the interviewer asked her, so where did you see God in your times of doubt? And she said simply, in my friends and family, in the community of people who prayed for me and who went to church with me, everybody, she said, were just the hands and feet of Christ for me. You see, we sustain each other, not just in times of hardship or challenge, but we sustain each other in our times of doubt and of not knowing. We take turns being strong and sure, so that when our time comes to be not quite so strong and maybe not quite so sure, there are others around us, a body of believers who will do the praying and the believing for us. It's such a beautiful thing we get to do together. Faith is a team sport. Too often we think that if we don't believe everything we hear in church, then we don't belong. If we can't recite every line of the creed without some reservation, then I shouldn't be saying it at all. If I question something in a sermon or in the words of a hymn or in the belief of my pewmate sitting next to me, then this must not be the place for me. I, surely I don't belong in church. Well, I call hogwash on that. True belonging does not require you to change who you are. True belonging requires you to be more of who you are. 
all your misgivings, all your doubts, all your questions. You know what unites us? This table right here unites us. Every week we get to come together and say, I, I remember. I remember what Jesus did. I remember what a difference that makes in my life as a follower of Jesus. I remember that. We may not have all the answers. We may still be searching. We are most definitely still a work in progress. But each week, this unites us. This Eucharist, this Thanksgiving, this table, this unites us. And I think that's a message that more of us need in this world. Did you know that the nuns now account for about 25% of the American population? And I don't mean nuns like the ones that wear a habit in the Catholic Church. I mean nun, N-O-N-E. The people who, when asked on a questionnaire or a survey what religion they identify with, they check none. So 25% of us now say we are nuns. And young people, that elusive group of people that all churches wish they had more of, Young people identify as nuns far greater in numbers than older people, which is not surprising given the world they've grown up in. Young people, the millennials who've grown up in a generation post 9-11, are more suspicious and less trusting than ever before. Millennials who are in their 20s and 30s, that's that age group, uh, in a recent survey said that only 20% of them believe people can be trusted. That's 80% of people in their 20s and 30s who say, well, I don't think people can be trusted. And I wonder maybe if we haven't allowed them to bring their distrust into the pews. Maybe we've made them to feel that their questions and doubts aren't welcome here. They don't belong. Maybe they want proof of God's existence because they think they need it before they can come here. Well, if they want proof, then I say let's give it to them. Let's begin right now to prove that God exists in the same way that Kate Bowler said she knew God existed by being the hands and the feet of Christ, being the embodiment of what Jesus commanded of his disciples, love. Doubt, my friends, is not the enemy of belief. Doubt, in fact, is often the doorway to greater belief. To doubt means you are wrestling with something really important. You're not dismissing it, but instead you're asking some hard questions. What do I believe? Why do I believe this? We've been asked to put our trust in things we cannot see. We better be wrestling with that. I want to tell you a story that some of you may well remember. It's the story of Jacob. Jacob in the Old Testament was the son of Isaac and Rebekah. He's the grandson of Abraham. And way back in the Old Testament in Genesis 32, Jacob is on his way back home to Canaan with his small tribe of wives and children. He's been an expat for 20-something years, and he's on his way back to meet his brother Esau. 
who to say he has had an estranged relationship with is putting it mildly. Esau's out to get his brother. And so he knows that Esau is coming to meet him along with 400 men. So this is not a welcoming party. This is an army. So Jacob spends the night alone and terrified of what the morning will bring. And in the night, he finds himself face to face, not with Esau yet, but with a stranger who wrestles him until daybreak, we're told. And at some point during this odd scene of wrestling, Jacob realizes that he's wrestling God. And when God decides that it's time to call it a night, the match is over, he dislocates Jacob's hip and then demands to be let go. But Jacob's not having it. Jacob, in pain and limping, refuses to let God go until he blesses him. Now, seems like a strange request, but to God, it was a pleasing one. And God stopped and blessed Jacob. And he said this, he said, you are no longer Jacob, you are Israel, which means you have wrestled and struggled with God and with men, and you have prevailed. That was the blessing that God bestowed on him. And then Jacob limped off with a weakened body, but a strengthened faith. And I want you to take note of that. Take note of what happened when Jacob wrestled God. Jacob began the night full of fear and desperation, but he ended up with God's blessing and a renewed faith. God will meet you in your doubt and your uncertainty. He will not push you away. God can handle your wrestling with your faith. You might think you need certainty to be a Christian, but God tells us otherwise. God allows for faith even the size of a mustard seed. When in doubt, in your darkest nights, stay there with God. Don't give up. I want to leave you with this. In the Gospel of Mark, there's a story of a man who brings his son to Jesus to be healed. The boy has been seized by an unclean spirit, the scripture says, and it might be something along the lines of epilepsy that we would call it today. The boy, uh, his father says, has suffered convulsions. He foams at the mouth. He's rendered mute. His body goes rigid. He gnashes his teeth. The father, it says, is worried that his son is wasting away. And he's already brought his son to the disciples to be healed, and the disciples said they couldn't do it. And so, with what little belief he has, he goes to Jesus and he says, if you can, please help us. And Jesus turns to him and said, if you can, all things are possible for him who believes. And in this, I love this next line so much. The man says to Jesus, I believe. Help my unbelief. In our times of doubt, when we, like Thomas, are trying to push through that veil of disbelief and reservations about our faith, let us hold on to what I believe is this man's perfect prayer. 
I believe, Lord God, but if there is still some shred of disbelief in me, some discouragement, something that still needs to be work on, worked on, some doubt, help me with that. Fill me with an unwavering faith. Help me with my unbelief. And then when God does, may we use our faith as a community of believers to help others when their time comes.